Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. everybody welcome to this episode of the stargate archives in which we take episode of stargate and we discuss the heck out of it tonight i am joined by tim evening mate hello and he's picked an interesting episode which is it tim we've gone with stargate atlantis condemned from season two and why did you pick this one I'll be brutally honest, it's because I started doing an Atlanta rewatch off the back of my SG-1 rewatch, but this is one of the last episodes I watched before I got distracted by doing an NCIS rewatch, so it was fresher in the mind. Ah, fair enough. NCIS rewatch, was that 17, 18 seasons? Counting the two later seasons that I got the other week because I'd fallen behind, it gets 16. Right. <laughs> this one might take a little bit longer. Yeah, I've thought about rewatching Smallville and I think 10 seasons, good God, no. <laughs> well, I guess the thing with Smallville, though, is you can stop after about four or five seasons because then it just starts pushing. This digression's not my fault. <laughs> but I'm on, I'm, I'm on, so I'll carry on. Yeah, go on. They try to do too much too quickly in Smallville and establish big name characters like Zod and Doomsday that make no sense to have if you do not have Clark established as Superman. Yeah, Bizarro as well. That didn't quite work. I think the problem with Bizarro is they just weren't willing to commit to Bizarro. Yeah. The introduction of Lois Lane worked. The intro of Lois Lane worked, and it has to be said, Erica Durrant, for me, kind of a tie with Terry Hatcher as far as Lois goes. But it has to be said, the star of Smallville was never Tom Welling. It was Michael, was it, is it Michael Rosebaum? R- Rosenbaum. That's the one. If you were to announce that you were doing the next Superman movie and he is going to be your Lex Luthor, he could get away with it. I'd buy that totally. Yeah, I, l- I listened to his podcast. He's had Tom Welling on a couple of times. Christian Crook as well. And I also love the fact that he was the Flash in the animated Justice League series. Yeah. Like, you know, how polar opposite do you get? The Flash, <laughs> Lex Luthor. Huh? Oh, God, it was, a, it was a bad movie, but it was a lot of fun. I think that's the thing, isn't it? There's... There's bad, bad, and there's good, bad. There are a lot of bad films that can be entertaining. A lot of movies that an awful lot of money have been spent on, which turn out to be very bad movies. And then there are movies that they've spent three or four million dollars on, which turn out to be, yep, they're not made very well, the act is not very good, the script could do with uh, many, many rewrites, but the overall package, you're entertained. Mm. See, in the same way that you can be entertained by watching an episode of Stargate Atlantis. Nice segue. <laughs> I figured we had to, to break away from this because <laughs> it's what? Oh, it's ten past nine already. These digressions weren't my fault. I know you keep I was saying that. Be so good. <laughs> so if you, you opened the door for me, it would have been rude not to walk through. <laughs> okay then. Condemned, season two, episode five of Stargate Atlantis. The story was by Sean Carley, written by Carl Binder and directed by the great Peter DeLuise. How can you go wrong with an episode directed by Peter DeLuise? When it gets to the director, there are some names on there. You see them come up and you think, I'm in good hands here. Peter DeLuise being one of them and Martin Wood being the other. Yeah. Either of those names comes up and you think, okay, I'm on board already. I think there's a reason why the franchise, after so many years, settled down to a kind of a very small group of directors. 
But if you see directed by either of those two, and if you see written by or story by Damien Kindler, it's another sort of good, yeah, okay. The only ones I get slightly weary of are when it's written by and it's one of the actors. Oh, right, okay. Sometimes I sit there and you think, oh. Yeah, this was part of your contract renegotiation, wasn't it? I also don't like it when you see directed by one of the actors. But literally because that usually means if they're behind the camera, that possibly means there's not going to be much of the actual character on the screen. And yet we've seen many an actor transition to directing and doing it well. Mm, there are exceptions to the rule. I mean, at the moment, you can't really look at IMDb. We've seen Amanda Tapping's name pop up on directing shows. Found herself a nice little niece there, hasn't she? Yes, she has. Right then, Condemned. It starts off in the jumper, punching through a Stargate. You know, you look inside, you see the seating arrangement, you see Ronan and McKay at the back having to lean around so they can see outside the windscreen. I always thought, why didn't they just move, you know, the chairs six inches inwards? Yeah, you kind of think the ancients didn't think that one out. Yeah, either that or if you're sitting in those chairs, you don't get to look out the window. Or, you know, at the very least, okay, we've screwed up, you can't see, but you maybe maybe put some windows in the side. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the people I feel sorry for are the people that are in sort of the bench seats in the back. Oh, yeah. It's like being in a transit van, isn't it? You know, when the seats are that way, you, you can't see anything, you don't know really what's going on. Here's a segue, but it's there. When I was a kid, my dad had a 90 series Land Rover. Yeah. Two seats in the front, and the back was sort of sideways facing seats. Oh, I hated it. Going sideways in a car is not good. <laughs> no, I suppose not. I mean, it's never going to be comfortable when they brake or accelerate, is it? No, especially when you've got a dog guard. You know, dog. <laughs> so, emergency stop, you're slamming up against a cage. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Are you all right about there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just broken. Bit of warning next time. We get Rodney pointing out, oh, look, there's nothing there, and Ronan, except for that smoke, which he's pointing to <laughs> out in the distance. And the bit I love about that is not only the po-faced look on McKay, but that little knowing look that, that passes between Ronan and Taylor. Yeah. Ronan hasn't been with the group this long, but he's catching on. We get a very nice shot of the jumper flying across a lake. The lake will look familiar because it was used in Childhood's End. And I read Wiki later on, uh, also in the episode Sanctuary. So I imagine they filmed the stock footage and they CGI'd in the jumper as and when required. They land at the camp, lots of debris around. This is the famed Stargate Atlantis Game of Thrones coffee book incident where there's an Oreo wrapper in the debris. To be fair, it happens. Oh, that's the thing. It happens. It's just a question of whether it gets noticed. Yes. And to be honest, it's a bit hopeful that you're going to get away with it in Game of Thrones when, you know, the internet is as much of a thing as it is. Yeah. Reading up on the Stargate Universe episode I covered with Thomas the other day, and uh, Joseph Motsi was saying he was incredibly annoyed that some of the fans had spotted something written on the wall that shouldn't have been there, but it was only spotted after it was broadcast. So it just shows you how how easy it is for things to get through. You know, when editors or directors are only looking at certain parts of the screen or certain aspects of the shot. And especially as well when it's a science fiction audience. Oh, yeah. Let's face it. We nitpick and we look at screen grabs. Oh, yeah. We can't help ourselves. All right. Ronan sees something cooking on a fire. He uh, has a sniff, has a taste. Mm, stew. McKay is uh, everybody. Not very happy, but... 
what else would it be? I mean, McKay thinks it could be somebody's washing. Well, I suppose it could, but Ronan's hungry. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, he did give it a sniff before he ate it, so, you know. Yeah, he, he knows what stew looks like and tastes like, so no worries there. What I think is brilliant with that scene as well, it's just how quickly McKay's mood and opinion changes on a dime. He goes from horrified and disgusted, what the hell is wrong with this caveman, to how good are we talking, really? Yeah. <laughs> as long as there's a nice, clean wooden bowl, he's game. Right, so there's nobody in this village. There's obviously the stew that's still uh, bubbling away. Should people were there very recently. And then arrows from the sky. And from the angle they came in at, you know, the people aren't very far away at all. Yeah, close enough that you think, how have at least two members of this elite team yeah. not picked up on their presence? I mean, yeah, OK. I totally get that Rodney didn't notice anything. Taylor and Ronan didn't notice anything until the arrows are literally right on top of them. Even Shepard, come on. Yeah, I'm disappointed that the sensors on board the jumper didn't actually give some sort of warning. Maybe that's one of the jumpers that hasn't, you know, they've been sat under that ocean for a bloody long time. Maybe that's the jumper that didn't quite survive the test of time as well. Yeah, with a problem that you're only going to realise it's got a problem when it fails to do something you're expecting it to do. Like warn you about 30, 40 people (laughs) hiding in the bushes. Mm -hmm. Sort of the equivalent of... That's the shuttlecraft in the later Voyager episodes that's not the Delta Flyer. <laughs> Hands up, who wants to fly that? Nobody? Oh, come on. <laughs> so, right, I need a volunteer for a shuttle mission. All the crew put their hands up. It's not the Delta Flyer. Oh, yeah, sorry, I've got a job to do. <clears throat> yeah. Hang on a minute, can't we recycle one of our other shuttles and build in another Delta Flyer? That's a... No, we can't. This is my ship. Or in, or in, <laughs> or in DS9... A runabout that's not the Rio Grande. <laughs> it's funny, they, they mention many, many of the runabouts, all with their own uh, aquatic river-based naming, but you don't really see that many. I do love, I think pre, I think it's late season three, it's definitely before Wharf turns up, they run that gag into the show. They've got a new runabout, and Cisco says, he's, I think I think he decides one's going to be the Rubicon, and Kira's like, it's a good thing Earth's got so many rivers. <laughs> Credit to Kira for knowing that, though. The team try to talk themselves out of this mess. Uh, it seems that they're going to be let go, but as soon as they poke their heads up, they get to firing upon catapults, bows and arrows, explosive little ball bearings by the looks on it. Then when they hear an aircraft come in, they've got huge three great big nozzles, that's huge in proportion, hovers over the camp, the jet stream washes everybody out. You have a major, major wire and ratchet stunt as dozens of stuntmen go flying through the air. Mm, yeah. That wouldn't have looked... There, there was no way that that was going to look good, was it? Whether you did it live action with people or whether you CGI'd it. It was more likely they'd be blown tumbling across the ground. Yeah, or sort of, you know, sort of blown face down into the ground as opposed to, hang on, air coming down, it's ending people flying up and out. Maybe it's because it's an alien planet. That's why physics is wonky. <laughs> I imagine the stunt coordinator, uh, which would be Bamford, wouldn't it? Yeah. Probably thinking, first opportunity I get to do a stunt with this many rigs, I'm going for it. And when he saw the storyboards with this strange aircraft, <laughs> with these huge engines, I thought, this is it. You can almost see his eyes lighting up with the idea in his head, regardless of whether it made sense or not. <laughs> well, that, that pretty much sums up most of the stunt work in movies and TV shows these I days. I can do this, therefore I will do this. The aircraft gets in touch with the jumper and uh, escorts them off towards the city. And we get the theme, and uh, we get a nice shot of the city, which is a very nice matted image. 
I assume that most of the grass, the greenery, that is a real place. The skyscrapers in the background, I imagine, are the actual matted parts of the image. But it looks nice. It looks mm-hmm. a nice place to live. You definitely think, okay, I've seen two places on this planet. I've seen a grotty little camp. And I'm seeing this place. At the moment, I think I know where I'd rather be. <laughs> yes, yes. Nobody's shooting me. So that's, that's a plus. Also, definitely selling point for the city. These people have saved me as opposed to try and kill me. Yep. 10 out of 10 would definitely come again. Right, they are approached by a young woman called Marin. Kyla Wise plays uh, Marin. She informs them that this world is known as uh, Lysia, and the island is a place, a penal colony. She do not go into that much detail, but that's what it is, basically. And also, I think she's a rarity in Atlantis of a young woman that neither McKay nor Shepherd hit on instantly. <laughs> okay. Could be her outfit. She's not showing a lot of skin. She's putting up this image I am not to be trifled with. See, that's a thing normally, though. I think Shepard would see that as a challenge. Give him time. <laughs> those people that like science fiction shows, those people that like science fiction shows that have been shot in Canada, will recognise the huge building that they approach. I know it from the 4400. Chance Centre for the Performing Arts. It's a very distinctive building. Huge amounts of glass. Looks futuristic. I think it, they were even used it on Battlestar. It does have the look of something that would have worked in Battlestar, doesn't it? Yeah. Obviously, before, you know, the whole nuking thing. It was, yeah. It was used extensively in the 4400. That was their main centre, so it was featured in every other episode. I think back then, that was before I knew it was a real building and not a, not a set. Like, well, that place is real? Yeah. The most interesting things are real. Mm. I mean, if you, if you didn't know about the Sydney Opera House and you saw it on a, a science fiction show, you'd go, wow, that looks... Interesting, doesn't it? But then you go, oh, that's real. That was built when? And like things with Book Rogers and the classic Battlestar, often they'd use sets from uh, the World Fairs, you know, expos and things like that, where architects tried to imagine what things would be like in two, three decades' time, so they look futuristic. Mm. doesn't always work, because you think, OK, so you thought in the future everything would be made out of concrete. <laughs> Flying cars always seems to be a thing. Yes, where are our flying cars? Sorry, Back to the Future 2, I'm feeling lied to. (laughs) I have no flying cars, I have no self-drying clothes, I have no hoverboard. Yes, the the movies of our youth just ruined us for expectations of the future. Or they terrified you about the possibility of the future, because the 80s saw the future one of two ways. Either hyper 80s, like Back to the Future, or, you know, kind of... Blade Runnery. Well, go to, go to the seventies. Soil and green is people. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, give us time. Right, this is where we meet the magistrate, played by Alan C. Peterson, who you will remember from the episode SG One episode Demons, where mm-hmm. again he didn't play a particularly nice person. This is the thing. I remember watching this because this season was when I was at uni, so my mum, bless her, was recording them. And then when I had to, when I had my weeks off, I was binge watching like five weeks worth at a time. <laughs> okay. And I remember watching this episode, and as soon as he appeared, I was like, "Well, he's a bad guy." And Mum was like, "How do you know?" I said, <laughs> "He was a bad guy in Stargate. He was a bad guy in Stargate before he got a snake." I mean, credit to the actor, he lays on the slime and the oozing straight from the word go. Yeah, that's. I think that's the crucial difference. In Demons, he didn't bother hiding that you know the arch villain. Yeah. This time, the magistrate, I think in this instance, because the magistrate doesn't, from the start, doesn't want to screw them over. 
he's actually quite liking the idea of what actually let's be nice with these people because it could really benefit us. Yes, because there's an opportunity for the gate to serve a secondary purpose without harming the primary purpose. As we learn, as he explains that, oh, yeah, it's, it's a penal colony. It's where we send people. Yeah, and the, the wraith, well, yep, they feed on them and they don't bother us. But uh, we only send the worst of the worst. Which is a very noble thing. Very noble. Even then, even before, if this is your first time watching this episode, it must trigger and you go, hang on, that's a law of diminishing returns in itself. Especially when he's in almost his very next sentence He's saying that prime is a rarity here. Yes. So you're thinking, hang on a minute. It's like, hang on. Your deterrent from the wraith attacking the city is the fact they come through the gate onto the island prison, feed on the prisoners. But if there's hardly any crime, seeing a flaw in this system. Yeah. Or at least I'm seeing a flaw in this system as advertised. No, that's it. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, I'm wondering if the magistrate was thinking long term and thinking this could be a way I could get off this world and find somewhere safe. Well, yeah, especially given what we find out a little bit later in the episode, you've got to think he's looking for a B plan. Yeah, but he is smart. He is clever. He reigns McCahin with with the uh, exploits of the scientific research they're doing. They've got a, a fissionable material that they manipulate to generate energy without the radioactive side effect, which is good. John is a little worried about communications, but no worries, you can use our communications. You'll be able to reach the gate and send a signal, no problem there. Yes, it'll be private as well, so he's, he's being compliant, he's being generous. He's just doing it in that, I'm not quite sure about you, manner. Mm. But you've got to give him the benefit of the doubt. While humanity is cut from the same cloth, these people have lived and evolved differently, so... It might just be that. They just might talk differently, you know, express themselves differently. Really blink and you miss it line. But this is at that point of Atlantis where they're still using the cover story of up until recently we were in Atlantis. Yeah. But Atlantis has actually been destroyed by the Wraith. And we're one of the few that we're we're we're, a, we're part of a small group that manages managed to escape beforehand. And it was only when I was rewatching it, I thought I'd forgotten that they originally went with that. Oh, it's very easy to forget, isn't it, really? <laughs> or just because it's such an insane idea, because, OK, yeah, we're trying to convince the Wraith that Atlantis has been destroyed, but we know we are going to run into the Wraith, and most of these conflicts involve us running through the gate back to Atlantis. The Wraith aren't stupid. They will recognise the symbols for Atlantis on the gate. Yeah, it was only buying time. It's just a question of how long. Now we make our first visit to Atlantis proper, talking about capital punishment. Interesting, I suppose you could argue, was it the conversation? Don't your people, you know, your world execute its violent criminals? You get the look from McKay. Some some do. I love the fact they don't play the Canadian card often. So when they do, it really works. Yeah, they don't even have to really advertise the fact. If you know McKay's Canadian or you see the flag on his shoulder and you know that Canada, like, let's face it, most civilised countries don't execute prisoners... The joke works, mm. and they don't try to wave the flag in your face and make a social point about it, because John pretty much cuts him off. This isn't the time or place for anything like that. Yeah, this is a later discussion. <laughs> yes, there's something we can talk about in Stargate Universe. Hint, hint. Right, back on the jumper, magistrate, very eager to open trade talks. The jumper, they agree that he's a creepy guy. <laughs> I think everybody agrees that the bloke is a creepy guy. Yeah, he's like... 
he's like a used car salesman. Yes. He's trying way too hard to be your best friend straight out of the gate. It's like, dial it back quite substantially, creeping me out. Now we get to a scene which always bothered me. Mm. Credit to the prisoners for setting up surface-to-air weapons on the flight path towards the gate. I do not like the fact that the jumper got damaged so easily. Mm -hmm. I don't like the fact that John wasn't taking any sort of evasive action. Granted, he didn't expect any serious opposition, but he knew that they were there. He knows they're there, and he has to assume that the majority of them are actually arseholes. Yeah, at the very least, 50 feet in front of the gate, they could probably do some damage with just the small munitions they had. You're in a puddle jumper that has got stealth capability. Yes. Yeah, okay, the jig's going to be up when you open the gate, but in the time it takes the gate opening and you to get through the gate, they're not going to be able to do a lot if they haven't got a clue until the gate opens you there. That's it, yeah. It's a whole sequence that the plot requires that I don't think they pull off very well. Mm. It means ancient technology is very vulnerable to small shrapnel. Yeah, again, it's, it's the which scenario makes less sense. Either ancient technology is that fragile... Prisoners with limited resources can make pretty impressive weapons. It's like we're talking a bit more than a shiv here. Yeah, but I suppose that I can go with only because the magistrate said, you know, there's this mineral we've got in our bedrock, in our soil, that is actually a very good energy producer. So, okay, maybe this world is rich in what the Federation would consider as, you know, dilithium crystals. So maybe they could come up with a bit of know-how, and let's face it, we we know, we later learn that basically, you go boo, you're getting sent to the island. So academic scientists who maybe criticise the current administration's environmental policy, say. It's still a hard sell, though, isn't it? Because it's like, OK, even if you've got, let's say, a planet full of geniuses on that planet, because, you know, geniuses are always the ones that get thrown away because nobody likes genius when you're a government. Even if they could mine the material... It's not like we've sent them to this island with the resources to actually do anything with it. No, especially as well, the Wraith are calling at reasonably regular intervals. Mm. And to be honest, I don't think though whatever those you know cannonballs were would have damaged one of the other you know one of the native flights because they did look solid. Mm. But unless it went straight into one of the air takes of one of the engines, that would have to be a hell of a shot, though, wouldn't it? Yes. Anyhow, John is totally incapable of getting the jumper to the gate. He crash lands. Fortunately, nobody's seriously hurt. Whenever you get scenes of the puddle jumpers crashing, I don't know why, because they they really don't look anything alike, but it always puts me in mind of... Can you remember the Thunderbirds episode? The old, decent Thunderbirds, not the scary CG version. Yeah. When Thunderbird 2 gets shot down. Yes. For some reason, it always puts me in mind of Thunderbird 2 going down. I don't know why... <laughs> But for some reason, every time I see a puddle jumper go down, that's the thought I've got in my head. I've said it before, but it annoys me greatly. Whenever, in any show, in any movie, this isn't one franchise against another or anything. Spaceships, they are fragile things. They are not bricks. It's not like a Borg. It's a solid, a solid cube. Spaceships crash. The Millennium Falcon. Let's see, that's one. That's the only one I come up with straight away. Oh, uh, yeah, the, Des the Destiny Shuttle. They hit the ground at God knows how fast. They slide across rocks and boulders and trees and everything, smashing everything, and they're still relatively intact. Mm. And I just can't buy that. 
in any show. I cannot buy that. They should be like a jet airliner when it crashes. Perfectly solid when it's in the air and subjected to pressures and tensions that it was designed for. You hit the ground at 200 mile an hour, it's going to rip itself apart. Well, and also not just that. You've got spaceship. You've got fuel. You can't tell me that the fuel tanks aren't going to explode. Yeah. I'll go to two separate examples. One I think that makes sense and one using your argument, no, it shouldn't work. Star Trek Generations, when the saucer section crashes. Okay. I can get away with that one not going kaboom, because it hasn't got the warp core. And it's got fusion reactors, though. It's got fusion reactors, but... But they were at the back of the saucer. You, you can kind of understand, you know, it's gone sort of as close to nose down as the saucer can get. Bit of a reach, but okay. The version that doesn't make sense for me is Voyager in Timeless, in the alternate timeline where it crashes on the ice planet. Yeah. Because you yes. actually see one of the warp nacelles get ripped off by a boulder. How was that entire ship not exploded? Would they seriously say, oh, uh, we shut down the warp drive, we got rid of the magnetic flux, the nacelles weren't channeling any power at that time? What do you mean they were lit up? No, they weren't. <laughs> I know it's something that, you know, the plot requires it, and you've You've got to be willing to say, yeah, I'll accept it, no worries, just go with it. But we know how fragile the ships are, and I don't think that's ever going to change in a thousand years of design and advancement. And also, what's the wonderful science fiction trope that only exists in science fiction? Ship A shoots at ship B. Ship B gets hit, it makes things on the ship explode in sparks. (laughs) However, same ship can crash land on a planet going God knows how fast, Fine, bit of a patch job. It'll be back. Up, it'll be back up in the stars in say ooh, a week tops. Yeah, if that. Well, yeah. I mean, unless Star Trek, in which case, by the end of the episode, she's spaceworthy again, which is definitely a plot device that bugs the shit out of me in Voyager. Because how? You haven't got access to Starfleet. You haven't got star bases. You've literally got whatever you've got on that ship. How is it always looking brand spanking new after seven years of having the shit shot out of it? <laughs> Yeah, even when they had the, the bore stuff bolted onto the hull. At the end of the episode, yeah, get rid of that stuff. And look, the plating's fantastic. We fill the holes in. Well, not even so much that. Really, I think it's a season two episode where you wind up having the two voyagers. One of those ships is practically crippled. By the end of the episode, it's fine, it's dandy, and the next episode is like it never happened. Sometimes I hate the Trek reset button. Yep, you're going to say, at least... I suppose you could argue that while Voyager was doing one thing, they allowed DS9 to do something else. Would have been nice if Voyager addressed it at least once at some point, you know, referencing the fact that, you know, kind of getting short on the ship, we need to fix the ship. <laughs> or if things well, started break. It's like they they did it at the end of Battlestar Galactica. I actually loved the idea that the Galactica was actually too broken for them to fix. Oh, that scene when the spine broke. Oh, that's... You see, that's the thing. I'd never really been connected. I never really. I enjoyed Battlestar Galactica. I never really had the sense of that ship being their home. Yeah. Until it is broken beyond repair. And then it's like, ah. <laughs> it's like I didn't buy the. I really didn't buy the Kelvin Enterprise as being the Enterprise until it's being torn apart in Beyond. As soon as that happening, I was literally like, no, you can't do that. That's, you can't do that to the Enterprise. That's wrong even though I was 90% certain we'll have an Enterprise A at the end of the film, <laughs> because I think Star Trek, I know how it works. Yeah, I suppose Beyond is my favourite of the three J.J. The Kelvin Universe movies, for the reason that everybody gives its closest to the original series in feel. 
Right, back to Atlantis. The ships crash, they are surrounded. Bows and arrows, slings again. All the supplies have been taken, a disturbing amount of weaponry. The leader of uh, these uh, prisoners, he's got a P90, he's very impressed with that. One of his men picks up a portable Sam, demolishes a building, laughs galore. The thing I love about that is as soon as you see him with the rocket launcher, it's like, I know the gag they're going to pull here. <laughs> I know exactly what's going to happen. Well, like I say, it worked in Commando very well, so why not do it in uh, Atlantis? Sometimes like, that's the thing. Even when you can see the gag coming a mile off, it can still work. Yes, it can. If everything else is down pat and you hit every beat perfectly, the oldest gags can still be funny. <laughs> what I wanted to see, though, was the heartbreak on their faces when they're looking at their ultimate weapon. And it's like, you know, you can't just reload that. Yeah, it's a one shot. That's it. You have wasted your one shot by blowing up somebody's hut. As soon as the guy with the rocket launcher didn't die instantly, we'll assume not the boss man's. Yeah, that'd have been interesting, wouldn't it? We go to the inside of a hut. It seems that, well, they're, they're definitely prisoners now, prisoners within the prison camp. The leader of this merry band of prisoners is Terrell, played by Christian Boker. Known him from SG-1, Wormhole Extreme and the episode 200, as well as Shades of Grey. So, uh, three different characters on two variations of Stargate. That's not bad at all. He's convinced that uh, the ship will fly again, pretty much telling him that, you know, you don't fix the ship, McKay. He'll start killing people. Kay comes out with a MacGyver line. That always... A few chuckles. I love, I love the little wall breaks. I love the fourth wall breaks with MacGyver and Sargo. Yeah. I still love, though, the best one, and they will never top it, is the one in the SG-1 pilot. When you've got Carter dribbling over the DHD. Yeah. And saying it took however long for them to MacGyver their version. Just the look that exchanges between Richard Dean Anderson and Michael Shanks, priceless. In jokes and references like that, it's part of why Stargate works. It's never, it's always willing to take, make fun of itself and the actors within it. Mm -hmm. And again, though, it's that we'll play that card, but not regularly. Deadpool gets away with it. We don't want to make it our show stick that, oh, yeah, you reference the fact that your actor's been in more than one show. Yeah, it, it remains funny because it is rare. Mm -hmm. We jump to Atlantis, they are reporting, the, Chuck the technician is reporting that the gate is open, we've got the IDC, but no contact from the jumper. Weir is concerned, she gets in touch with Major Lord to tell him to get his team onto standby and ready a jumper. Back in the hut, Ronan is royally pissed off. You've got to remember that this is early Ronan, he is not fully integrated with the team yet, he is still a bit of a, a live wire, mm -hmm. you know, and he's a rabid dog on a leash at the moment. Yeah, he's not the slightly more, he's not the slightly tamer version of Ronan that will get down the line. No. This is Ronan who is really not used to a chain of command where he is not top dog. No, he'll, he'll basically get to the nearest prisoner, kill him, take his weapon and kill as many people as he can. He's going to keep killing until he either runs out of people to kill or they kill him. I love the fact though, John's got to pretty much put the foot in a bit, you know, reinstate the order. I love it when he's. I love it when Ronan's like, "Is that an order, Shepherd?" And Shepherd's like, "I am beat up. I am tied up, and I couldn't order a pizza now if I wanted to. But if you need it to be an order, then yes, it's an order." And I think that works. If it had just said yes, Ronan would probably still have obeyed him, but the resentment would still have been there. The fact that this other guy is willing to take the piss out of himself a bit mm. to get the desired result, I think. Ronan comes to respect that. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's that initial thing. That they even like say Ronan even references it later on when he says to Shepherds, "Oh, I thought you were afraid to fight." I think it takes Ronan a little while to get onto the fact that John won't go looking for a fight. Yeah, his his first instinct is not to actually use his weapons. If he has to, he will fight and is damned good at it. But he will not always go straight for the violence option unless he has to. Which, again, though, does kind of make sense because, yes, Ronan has come from a military background. That's all gone to shit and he spent the last few years literally just, it's him or the Wraith. Yeah, he can't give anybody the benefit of the doubt. Exactly. He can't just stand there and say, I'll give you the chance to shoot first. I can't trust you. It's my life. Exactly. You know, I can't afford to be in one place for too long. You are in my way. You either have to move or I am going to move you. We next meet Eldon. He's considered a bit of a, a scientist, played by Darcy Belshire. He's a weird little fella, isn't he? He is. He's The way they portray him, you think he's, he's maybe a bit on the spectrum, or what we'd consider that. He's yeah. uh, obviously intelligent, but <laughs> I like, like the idea, I think, I don't know if it's this scene or a bit later on, where you know McKay's saying to him, oh, did you create those weapons? Well, no. Uh, I did refine the explosive, I did design the tra- casings, I did actually calculate the trajectories, but... <laughs> Yeah, sort of rattles off a list of things. You almost want McKay to go, so you did build the weapon then? Yeah, or you want a job. <laughs> I think we could use you. You know, clean you up a little bit. You, know, you, can, might be, you might be able to give Zelenka a run for his money. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he'd probably be a bit more subservient as well compared to Zelenka, who does mumble under his breath with the best of them. Oh, yes. <laughs> I especially love the early McKay-Zelenka dynamic. When you can tell they really haven't warmed to each other yet. No, there's no no love lost early on. I think it's in the storm when they're trying to work out. And McKay's like, oh, well, if only if only we had our machine that could rapidly turn back time or whatever it is. Did you bring yours? Because I foolishly left mine on Earth. And Blanker <laughs> just looks at me and says, you're not pleasant when you like this, McKay. And McKay's like, what are you talking about? I'm always like this. And Blanker's like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they wrote that character well. Mm. I say David Nichol, he he really did wonders with it. And again, I love the fact though that even though even though he's he's not the David Hewlett, he's not on he's not on the main cast and never will be. But I love the fact that they do keep bringing him back and they do develop the character. Yeah, he's not just another technician or another lab coat. He's actually a character in his own right. A lot of the time, the budget and producers won't allow actors who are appearing on a show enough times to warrant being in the title card but obviously it's if you're in the title sequence you get paid a lot more yeah but the very fact that they are bringing in bringing you back you are a semi-recurring character it is going to look great on your resume that you've done 20 30 episodes of a series Mm. and they like you that's ultimately it they must like the character and they like the actor that must be as good as anything Three examples that always spring to mind for me for that sort of thing as guest characters. It's like, how are you not on the main cast list? All come from the same show, and that's DS9. The wealth of stunning actors they have as guest characters, or nearly always, especially towards the latter half of the show, they're nearly always in it, and yet they're still guest characters. For the amount he's in it, especially in season seven, you could have bumped Aaron Eisenberg as Nog up to the main list. I recall the final season of Angel. Joss Whedon made it a point to put Mercedes McNabb, and I think James Masters, in the title sequences. Mm-hmm. 
just because it, it would give a boost to their careers. And especially with Mercedes McNabb, she's been there since the beginning of Buffy. Yeah. Yes, yeah, she's had, there have been big gaps where she's not been there. And to be honest, you haven't missed her not being there. But when they bring her back, it's like, I've actually missed Harmony. <laughs> Who'd have thought? And I can't believe I've missed Harmony. Right, back in the jumper, Terrell. I like the sequence because he's talking to McKay. He's on about, you know, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. But I know the threats against you aren't going to work. I know what sort of character and what sort of man you are. I've got to be impressed that he can read McKay that well because he's right. Strange enough, McKay has got this little bit of iron inside, much to his own surprise, Mm -hmm. when he actually discovers that he has got a backbone. And he will jump into the fire when required for somebody else. His first instinct is always to run away. That is true. Yeah, but when he, when he knows he can't run away. The thing with Terrell as well is he's instantly worked out that McKay's the one who's going to be able to fix the ship. If any of them are going to be able to do it, it's going to be McKay. So you sit there and you think, right circumstances, this guy could actually be a hell of a leader. Yeah. The fact that he's clearly psychotic... And I'm not going to lie, that hurts him. <laughs> Just a bit. But, you know, so as soon as he walks into that hut, he knows it ain't going to be Dreads that's going to fix the ship. It's going to be the little guy here cowering. Otherwise, why else is he here? Yeah. I love that scene in the jumper as well, though, when McKay's trying to fix things and Eldon's just pulling crystals out. <laughs> McKay grabs it, puts it in his pocket, and then all of a sudden, Eldon's got another crystal and McKay's like, oh, where did that come from? Yeah, it's not, it's not as if they're numbered. Or are they? And they've just never told us. Is it the case that only McKay knows the actual numbering sequence where they're actually supposed to go? You mean I like the notion in Star Trek that Scotty always sort of increases the estimates on how long it's going to take to do something? Something like that. That way when he gets it done in the time it'll actually take, he looks like a miracle worker. Yeah. (laughs) I'll always love that scene in the next gen episode he's in when Geordie gives him the time card time or something and Scotty's like, how long is it really going to take? And Geordie's like two hours and it's like you don't tell them how long it'll actually take to be fair to geordie he wasn't an engineer he was trained as a pilot how does he know these you know the little tricks that uh, chief engineers take decades to learn before they take control of the starship i do love the flip side of that with voyager when balana gives janeway a time estimate and janeway's like right i want it down and she knocks how many and torres is like no i don't pad my estimates when i tell you it's going to take <laughs> ek long gonna take X long. And I love the fact that Janeway, to her credit, is like, understood. Yep, good to know. As long as that's the procedures from now going forwards, I don't mind. I know what you're going to do. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Kirk really knew what Scotty was up to, but he just played along. <laughs> and if Kirk didn't know, Spock had to have known. Oh, yes, very definitely. Right, back on Atlantis, Weir is in a jumper, Lorne is there with his team, not a very big team, but a few extra Marines. As soon as they jump through the gate, go to stealth. Why couldn't Shepard have thought of this? <laughs> yes. I never quite understood, though, why didn't they stick around, just have a look around the gate, get a lay of the land, so to speak? Especially given that they know that the jumper had to be close enough to the gate for them to dial. Yeah. It wouldn't have taken a great deal to spot what was going on. And they must literally have flown off in just literally the wrong direction because the crash jumper really isn't that far from the gate. No, we can we kind of see the actual geography of it. Because, it because, you know, if they'd just gone slightly more in one direction, like they'd have literally flown over it, and they'd been like, oh, shit, there are our people. Or at least there's the jumper. That's the problem, you see. The Marines and Lorne weren't peeking out the windows. 
They were checking the weapons well, and everything. Well, be fair, the Marines can't see out the window because, you know, we've, <laughs> we've already established, unless you're in those front two seats, visibility is not, is not your friend. <laughs> we get another, another McKayism. What is it? Captured by the cast of Braveheart, something like that. Great line. We also see Terrell going through the packs and finding one radio, then finding another, getting a very knowing look on his face, and you think, yeah, what was he up to? And back on McKay, yeah, he's with Eldon. You know, again, Eldon's obviously proving he's very clever. Unfortunately, McKay's discovered all the primary systems of the jumper are down. That includes the DHD dialing, so there's pretty much no way to actually dial the gate because there is no DHD there anyway. Because, you know would make it and i love the fact that he even asks if there's a dialing device and it's like okay they're using the island as a prison you're not going to leave the front door key there well the question is is the one in the city or has it been lost in time i'm thinking it's probably a case of it's been lost yeah that would make more sense i mean you got a feeling that this magistrate said we've, we've become very self-sufficient so they're not trading again we've seen though that there are civilizations that have a DHD which never really figure out how the gate works well I guess that's the thing as well they sort of they just sort of say in Stargate it's like you know even if you had the DHD and you knew that if you push seven symbols then push the big red button big ring thing does the whoosh thing finding a sequence of symbols that will actually connect without some kind of guidance is a shot in the dark you can just imagine somebody though some ruler or city council saying okay here's a budget for next year's dialing the gate and there's a list of the addresses. This is page 5,780 out of 20,298-page document. Each page has 1,000 addresses on. We will find one that works eventually. Just a matter of time. And the really annoying thing is, by accident, you'd probably wind up getting, like, two or three addresses that were perfectly valid. Something's wrong with the gate on the other end. <laughs> yeah, you go through, and I dare say that even if you went through, chances are you probably wouldn't be back, because... How many people would know then know the address of their homeworld? Yeah. And even then, you're assuming that you're going to a planet where there is a functioning DHD. Yes. And not one of those planets that have got the natives surrounding the gate with the heavy weapons. Yes. <laughs> Pretty much on, on a losing bet if you're not 100% sure how the gate works mm-hmm. and have some sort of map. Which, again, makes sense teaming up with the former inhabitants of Atlantis. Yes. We're back at the hut. Terrell has got McKay... He demands that he chooses one of the other survivors who he can execute if McKay doesn't fix the jumper. I can't do that. As he says, I know you're tight. Ooh, that's cold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's cool. Although, I suppose it's not an insult as such. But, yeah, I'll threaten everybody else first. And you'll cave. So he secures McKay and leaves them to kind of talk it out amongst themselves. Let them chew in their own juices, so to speak. Jump to the city... The magistrate, again, talking with Weir. He's been very reasonable, but he's very shifty. The eyes are going left and right, left and right. Almost as if he was walking along, patting his head because he was sweated, because he was telling big lies. You know it's never good when the person you're talking to is looking everywhere except making eye contact with you. I can lie, but not to your face. Yeah. I can sell this story as long as I'm looking in the camera and not addressing the crowd. And it's almost that it's almost that sort of thing where he's being weird and he's making the mistake of thinking weak female here, I can get away with this. Yeah, that could be. And it's like, mate, you're out of your league here. Weir has proven that she did not come down in the last rain shower. (laughs) There's no way she's gonna fall for your smarmy smarmy act. Yeah, we definitely see that later on between the two of them. 
Back in the hut, Ronan is, is losing it. He doesn't like being restrained, which is understandable. We get the classic line, take it easy, Chewie, from John. Fortunately, Ronan probably doesn't get the reference at this point. John might be in trouble if he does. You'd love the idea that Ronan stores all of these things in head. And then a year or so down the line, when Shepard's completely forgotten he said it, it'd be like, you and I need to have a word, mate. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to go sparring? Yeah, OK. <laughs> this is where Eldon appears. He hands a knife to John. John starts cutting him out. Eldon, obviously, he gives him some warnings. Terrell is dangerous. He is a mass killer. He's killed people on the island. He killed eight people in the city. So, actually, someone who deserves to be there. Surprisingly. So it shows that no matter what the deterrent, at some point, you're that psychotic. Threat consequences don't really make any difference. Fortunately, or unfortunately, John knows McKay a lot better than uh, Terrell. John knows McKay is lying, or at least not telling the complete truth, because, as he points out, you really suck at lying, soap spill. (laughs) McKay actually says, well, Jumper's never going to fly again, but... I may get enough power to the DHD and we can walk home. As the guys escape, we see the radio with its call button open. So Terrell's been listening this entire time. Clever. As I say, you know, if, if it wouldn't for the whole psychotic murderer thing, he's proven that he's, he's again, a bit like where he's nobody's fault. Right circumstances, fairly efficient leader if it wasn't for the whole, you know, murdering psychotic thing. Which, let's be honest... Not a small thing. <laughs> he would have been perfect leading Ford's Lost Boys. Yeah, actually. His character would have suited that mission right down to the ground. Poor Ford. <laughs> he lives on in the novels. Nobody really, really believed he died on the hive ship. No, I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's a little bit like Apophis. Even when you even when you get the next death scene, you're like, you've played this fake out way too many times. I know he's yeah. going to be back. It's just a question <laughs> of when. Yeah. Even as the season's ticked off and the finale got near, he's saying, no, he's still coming back. Mm-hmm. Still time. <laughs> yep. And then, oh, continuum. He's back. Pops <laughs> is back. Oh, he's, da- he's dead again. Right, in the forest, John, he's uneasy. He says, he says this, is, this is way too easy. It is. You don't just put out in the back of a tent and run away without anybody noticing you. These are a disorganised bunch of uh, prisoners. They're scattered throughout the place and they're going to rat on anybody they see. Yeah. It's a trap at the jumper, but it hasn't been sprung yet. John asked McKay, how long do you need to fix the DHD dialing system? Two days, or ten minutes. Bless him. It's like, we're in an ideal world, two days. It's like, McKay, you're here because you crashed, so it's fairly obvious, ideal world, out of question. Yeah, I'd love to give you two days, but we haven't got here. Yeah. Assume we haven't got two days. What else can you give me as an estimate that's maybe, you know, substantially less than two days? And, you know, 10 minutes is definitely less. It is. That is viable given how long we've got for the rest of the episode. That, that too. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's when the gate dials. So everybody panics and a wraith dart comes screaming through. Yes, because if there was one thing we needed, it was another problem. <laughs> I like the fact that he must have seen us and we don't matter. And I like that. At this point, it doesn't matter. It's just a crash site irrelevant to the raid there is nothing on this planet that can hurt us mm-hmm. and it flies off into the distance must be going to the city mm, interesting i also love the fact though it's one of those wonderful moments where without actually meaning to the race have actually helped yes yes because race start coming through is a wonderful distraction for the people that were supposed to be ambushing us because all of a sudden <laughs> we're a little bit more concerned about the race dart than we are the people we're supposed to be ambushing 
Yeah, instead of going on three, we're now going on 300. <laughs> Let's just stay hiding for a bit, obviously, because when the jumper came through, they scattered. Uh-huh. And it, I think they only regained their courage and the weapons when they realised that, hey, up there aren't Wraith. They're just a bunch of humans. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like that. I can never remember the alien in the first season episode of SG-1 in um, in Korai. Yeah. It's you see the gate. You see the gate active. You run because, yeah, it might not be the ghoul, but on the other hand, it might be. Yeah. So scatter. We'll come back later. That's it. If it's not the ghoul, then no harm done. No harm, no foul. We can come <laughs> back later and say hello to whoever it is if they're still here. We're not exactly a tourist attraction. The odds are good if that gate is opening, it's not going to be nice things coming through. The disturbing thing is, if this was Earth, we'd also be making it a reality show. Yeah. Because on the island. Yeah, we really would. <laughs> Back with the magistrate, he's talking to somebody. We recognise that sort of voice. And the wraith is revealed. And again, I love the fact it's now we're dealing with a very different magistrate. Oh, yes, we are. He's not so smarmy anymore. Belly holding on to his shit, because, you know, Wraith bit scary. And this Wraith in particular, because he's all, almost as if he's spent, you know, a couple of years at a, a British boarding school. He's developed a taste for the finer things. He is civilised. He is charming. It's a bit disturbing how he eats, pretty much just like a like a penguin or something, mm. you know, with a bloody great big fish where they just have to throw the neck back, open the throat up and hope it just slides down. But he actually, oh, <laughs> uh, he, he says, oh, this food's good. Much better than what the other other chef prepared. Yes. Who wasn't very appetising either. I found your last chef much more appetising than the meals you prepared. <laughs> uh, you can almost, you can understand why the magistrate totally buckled and was willing to sacrifice his people. Because what is the alternative for him? Mm. There isn't one. You've got to play along. You've got to do, you've got to be... Worse than the person that's invading your land. It's like the Nazi collaborators during World War Two. The Nazis were scum and everything with it, but the people that collaborated, they probably had to do even worse because they had to turn in their own people, their own neighbours, their own even their own families. And I love the fact as well that they established the magistrate is not the criminal mastermind that came up with this idea. This is an arrangement that has existed for a very long time. Yes, he's just kept the wheels he's, rolling. He's just the next one in line to keep going with it. Which underlines, the like this Wraith says, you've kept my hive, my people, well fed. Well, the bulk of my, my people have, have been sleeping. I've just been here, building power. Yep. He's probably gained resources that go beyond anything other Wraith hives nearby have been able Which to. is why I think it's a real shame that we didn't get more of this Wraith. Well, to be fair, James Lafazanos did play a lot of Wraiths. This was only one of his many. Okay, I, I will rephrase that. This particular Wraith character, <laughs> because the idea of having an actual established Wraith on the block, not just one of the many Wraiths that's woken up and is bloody hungry. You know, an idea of a Wraith has actually been a rake the whole time. You know, he's actually established a power base. He knows what's what. I think that's what they did later on with Todd. But at this point, the Wraith was still very much of a of a mystery, at least below the Queen's. Mm. At this point, he says, you know, too many hives, too many of his brothers and sisters are awakening. The demands on the food supply is outstripping what worlds can provide, so he'll need more. And there aren't many, there aren't many prisoners on your tiny little island. Yeah, exactly. He's actually invited some friends over for dinner, and woe be tired if the corner shop hasn't got the right stuff. Yeah, about to say. The magistrate is really being pushed in one direction by the wraith, and you've got awkward woman from Atlantis 
pushing in the other direction. Yeah, and it's it's that, it's that look on his that look where it's like you know for all for all the sort of the smarm and the bluster you were giving Shepherd and Weir, it's nice to see an actual genuine emotion. And I love the fact that genuine emotion you usually see from these characters eventually is one of fear. Yeah. When they meet the person that their smarm and their bluster and all of their patter is not going to make the least little difference. Ultimately, the Wraith are very straightforward. Yep. <laughs> you can talk and bluster as much as you want. The Wraith knows exactly what you can and cannot offer. He's going to know when you're making promises you can't deliver on. And that time might be getting a little bit closer than you're going to be happy with, Mr. Magistrate Man. Yeah, this would be a perfect time for having a, a way off the world. If only the people from Atlantis had arrived a week earlier. Mm. Yes, if only I had the nows to actually not try and screw Weir over, actually help her try to find her people, then maybe I could book myself a seat on one of those nice ships that can fit through the Stargate. <laughs> yeah. Right, we get a, a quick scene in the jumper with John and McKay, and we're back to the city with Marin, who reveals some of the truth of what's going on. She's a little bit uh, nervous, a little bit scared. She reveals the fact that these days more and more people are being sent to the island. There's a, a roundup going on right at that point. Jaywalking is basically a crime now where you get sent to the island. Unfortunately for her, the magistrate walks in with his men and she's arrested for treason. Because even talking about anything that could mm, damage the ruling power, the reputation of the current government, is treason. So uh, one of my annoying things about this episode, Marin, who actually tries to do the right thing, probably ends up dead. It would be nice to get a little bit of closure on her character. Just know, you know, did it all, did she get on yourself? She, no, I mean, yeah, she probably wound up. You feel sorry for her. Yeah. Although at the same time thinking, nice warning, could you not maybe have glued Shepard into this? Saved us a whole lot of bother. Yeah, there is that. I suppose, I say, we don't really know the frequency of the the Wraith culling. And she's not, not an old, you know, she's only young herself. So maybe she wasn't around, or at least she may have been a youngster the last time mm. the, the Wraith appeared. And again, as well, I suppose if the Wraith aren't going any further than the island, then really the whole culling is, is, is a fairly abstract concept. Yeah. Yeah, like a lot of things, unfortunately, if you don't see it happening to yourself or someone you, you know, you're willing to overlook it. It's amazing how much we're willing to overlook when it's happening to people that aren't us or other people we don't generally care about. Yep. We're at this point, though. She does care about pretty much everything that happens beneath her watch, even to people she doesn't really know. And she is getting... That's the thing with Weir, isn't it? Her bullshit detector is second to none. If you play straight with her, you haven't got a problem. I think early on, having to deal with John and McKay pretty much put a fine fine shine on diplomatic abilities. Well, not even so much that. When she's still in charge of the SGC and they've got the system lords over, she pretty much works out, go big or go home. Just that whole notion, you know, I'll bluff a system lord. <laughs> her patience with the magistrate has now, it's gone. Yeah, you're going to arrest me. <laughs> Go on then. Yeah. Allow me to introduce you to my friend Major Lorne and his friends, the Burly Marines. We might not survive, but it would be a bit of a bloodbath. Like you say, she knows how to bluff. Mm -hmm. Or she knows what she's willing to risk. Yeah. Up to and including actually giving the order. There's what she's willing to risk and there's what she's willing to put up with. Yeah. Right, back at the jumper. The party's over. It's not looking good. Terrell returns. 
he can't see the big picture, you know, holding John and everybody uh, at gunpoint. It's kind of counterproductive at this point. The thing that I love about this is in the initial fight scene in this, two things stand out for me as brilliant. Yep. It's when you see Taylor take the small stick, snap it in half on the leg. <laughs> yeah. John takes the stick that is about five times as thick, then obviously fails miserably. But then also it's just in the fight scene itself. Shepard takes on one guy. Taylor takes on one guy. Ronan, because he's Ronan, takes on two. It very much shows the different fighting styles of the three characters. As you say, Shepard's is Shepard isn't special forces trained. He has normal combat training of the military. He's efficient, he's strong, he's skilled. Taylor is an expert with with her twin sticks. Fast, imaginative, and she can handle people very easily. Ronan is just a monster. And as well, the thing that I love about it's a really good point is when you see Taylor fight, there's no wasted movement. Everything she does is for purpose. You see often where in between a, a quick bout of action, you know, the fighters step back, they shake their arms a bit, loosen the limbs again before they, right, here we go again. None of that. You take one step back, it's because the next step requires that to happen. Exactly. Whereas you see Ronan and it's just, I'm going to hit you and hit you and hit you as many times as is necessary for you to be on the floor. Yeah, and, even, and then I'm going to put the boot in. And well. then, I do love that thing when they're finally surrounded, he realises so it's like, well, I can't do anything, I can kick this bugger. I know, he's, he's unconscious on the floor. Okay. And that is quite possibly the one and only time we will see Ronan Dex do petulance. But it's there. I suppose that he was totally convinced that none of these people will really fight for each other. Mm. They're fighting for themselves always. So there's no love lost if he did, if he did that. Nobody's going to take offence. Yeah, no one's going to say, Oi, that's my mate. Yeah. It always was amazing watching Taylor fight, even when she was in the gym. I mean, a lot of it would have been a stunt double, but a lot of the times, enough you know, combat training herself to make it look real. Why it always kind of bugs me, well, not bugs me, but it would have been nice in the siege to actually see her and Bates go at it. Yeah. Because I would have loved to see her clean his clock. <laughs> he wouldn't have had a chance. He was fortunate just to come away with a severely blackened mm-hmm. eye. And some various uh, lacerations and bruises. I always kind of wanted to have the scene afterwards where you just want Shepard or Ford to have said to him, you do realise that we saved your life there. We stopped Taylor from killing you. You might have got a hit or two in, but you'd have been soundly thrashed. I mean, as it was, hey, you disappear and we never see you again until like season five. (laughs) Then he's a good guy. What do you know? Apparently having the shit kicked out of you by a wraith, it's a transformative experience. It's not really. It's something you've really got to come to terms with because you can't really tell anybody, mm. except within your immediate circle. Yes. Now they've got problems because a wraith cruiser is descending from orbit and more are coming. So uh, they've got a problem because the usual armaments of the prisoners aren't really going to cut it. Fortunately, while the DHD is down, a drone. We can fire one drone. It'll give our way our position, but... Surely the Wraith know exactly where you are now. They have windows. So they fire the drone, they hit the Wraith cruiser. Nice and solid hit on the underside of the hull. You get some secondary explosions. Uh, the ship is severely damaged. Doesn't fall from the sky. That would have been interesting. And I love the fact that this demonstrates the point that McKay was making in the first season when they were accounting why the Ancients lost. Because if a puddle jumper does that much damage in one shot to a cruiser... It demonstrates that, yeah, the ancient tech was always better. 
there were just too many of the wraith. Yeah. You knock one down, oh look, there's another two taking their place. The best you can ever hope for the ancients to get was a stalemate. That's always been the mindset of the Soviet Union and well definitely the Soviet Union during the Cold War times. Their technology was always behind that of the West. But for every single jet fighter we could put up, they could put up three. Mm-hmm. You know, the MiGs were not as sophisticated, but when you've got a squadron of F 14s and 30 or 40 SU 27s coming towards you, then you ain't going to get all of them. Yeah, best will in the world. You know, you might be better than us one on one, but we're not coming at you one on one. 10 to 1, odds are in, odds, odds start sliding back into our favour. Ultimately, you look at the Korean and the Vietnam Wars. The American opposition soon realised that you couldn't fight American forces on equal footing. You had to fight them in a different way, guerrilla warfare. Mm-hmm. The ancients always had the upper hand, and they should have been able to fight back the wraith. But I don't think their hearts were ever really in it. They were the ancients. Their lives are important. They, I don't believe they had a military corps that were willing to throw themselves into fire mm. on principle. Yeah. You never hear about the ancient version of the SAS doing the rounds. No. Even the Tok'ra are willing to get their hands dirty. I say, I'm not a great fan of prequels, but maybe something about the ancients might work. Who knows? It does surprise me that we didn't get, even if it's sort of, you know, a time travel episode or just something through flashbacks, with the exception of that one little bit where you get the alternate timeline version of Weir that goes back to the original sinking of Atlantis, that we didn't get a little bit more of the war. Yeah, we only kind of skimmed the surface with various episodes. Give us an idea. Especially sort of you get when you sort of hit like season three and you introduce the Pegasus Galaxy version of Replicators, which were designed to be the soldiers for the ancients, because, you know, we ain't going to do our own fucking fighting. Yeah, and then what happens? They turn out to be more dangerous than the Wraith, so <laughs> the ancients have just got to, well, sterilise that world where we're doing the experiments, and as usual, a lot more arrogant than they, they can justify. It's, oh, we've got rid of them now, no worries. I do kind of like the idea as well that, when, for the most part, when you do meet ancients, they always play the, we're so much better than you. And it's like, really? Because you've made some massive mistakes that we're not even close to doing. Yep. I suppose that's gratifying when you get an ancient that is willing to help, understands what's going on. Yes. And then you get your payoff that there are good ancients, there are some sensible ones, you know, there aren't all uh, total arrogant fools. It's like, hang on, you know, before you go all superior on us ancients, wind your neck in. Have a look at your track record compared to ours. It's like, yeah, we've done some bloody stupid stuff, but you, <laughs> you someone else. Terrell gives the radio back to John, makes contact with Weir, tells her to remain in stealth and dial one of the backup planets. Any of them, doesn't really matter. Terrell still doesn't trust him, but John says, I don't give a monkeys. You stay, go, I don't stay, care. Stay, go, I don't care, but you are not coming with us. <laughs> yeah. And I love it when Elvis uh, is back. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're all, you're all right. Yeah, we'll never see him again, but yeah, you're coming with us. <laughs> you can imagine that he finds a nice home with the uh, Thosians. Really uh, improves the fertiliser in the in the soils. Mm-hmm. The second cruiser appears, and as the first one limps away, it opens up with its secondary guns, I imagine, not its main weapons. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that the targeting systems aren't designed for short-range air surface firing, because they miss everything. Well, not just that as well, that... No, push on stuff. These things are designed to shoot somewhat bigger targets than teeny weeny people. Yeah. Then we get to the closing shot of the episode, and it's my favourite shot. Just the magistrate looking out the window, 
and you see that cruiser just getting ever so and he knows exactly what's coming for him that is look at the ball this is what you're looking at emote perfect terror yeah and i love the fact as well it's one of those instances where that is the perfect fade to black moment we as the audience don't need to see what happens next because we know what happens next yeah there is no room for doubt that the people we don't really know how big the city is we don't know if there's more than one city we don't know nothing about that all we know is that the people that the magistrate is supposed to protect they're all going to die because he has failed yep the very best that we can hope for for that planet is that some people survive odds are you're looking at Satida right there yep that place is about to become a dead world that wraith he's going to be annoyed because one of his cruisers got damaged oh yes and the thing is as well he's going to be he's going to know damn well what it is blew a hole in his ship oh yes and my guess is that his first objective we're telling his men i want the magistrate alive bring him you to bring me. him to me do not snack on him he is mine yeah. yeah i've got some questions like how long were the atlanteans here why did you not think that was worth telling me <laughs> yes while we were having dinner the leader of the exposition was downstairs mm-hmm. what <laughs> downstairs room next door where were they come on in fact Wraith being the Wraith, I reckon the Magistrate is probably the one guy that actually survives. I reckon that's one the Wraith are going to, we're going to enjoy torturing you. Yeah, you'll see every single person of your world die before you do. Yeah, everyone you were supposed to protect, you are going to see die. If there is anyone on this planet that you care about, you're going to see them go. You're going to wish that we're going to kill you, and we ain't going to be that kind. We might eventually, when we get bored, but for the foreseeable future, mine. (laughs) <laughs> yep it was a very good way to close the episode i can remember seeing as well a lot of people thinking that the perfect way to end that episode would have been for him to turn around and the race just there or he's looking out the window and we just see like the reflection of him coming up behind him it's like no you don't need to do anything else just the expression on his face he knows what's about to happen we know what's about to happen anything else is overkill and you are gonna you're gonna limit the effect and that was condemned. And oh yes, he certainly was. <laughs> a pretty solid season two episode. You look at early season two, it started strong. It started very strong. I think season two could have been problematic because you've got the you've got an established cast, but then you've got the newbie joining. Yeah. It's a question of how how long do we play the fish out of water before we make it he knows what he's doing in relation to his place with these people. I think it helps that he's replacing the one character that we never really bothered to develop. Everyone else in season one gets developed, apart from Ford. He's pretty much the same character in the beginning of Rising to when you see him surrounded by Wraith at the end of the second part of the siege. Yeah. I wonder how early on they realised that maybe that character was a dead end. I mean, that character was the last one to be cast. So Rainbow joined the party pretty late on. The fact that they had a second US military officer subordinate, there simply wasn't room for conflict between him and his commanding officer. No. I mean, in SG-1, Carter and Jack works because they are very definite, different career paths. She brings something to the uh, team that Jack can't, and by that, level of that's the thing for the sg1 dynamic carter provides something that o'neill can't 
Yeah, so she can actually oppose his opinions by citing her own experiences, her own intelligence. O'Neill needs Carter as a member of the team in a way that Shepard does not need Ford. He could rotate Ford's position in the team throughout the Marine contingent on Atlantis. Yeah, because you've got the extra muscle in the form of Taylor. You've got McKay's the brains. They don't even try and establish him really as plucky comic relief. She could get away with Shepard's team being like season eight SG one, just a three man team. Yeah, you probably could. Funniest thing was when we did when me, Stacey, and Lizzie went to Telford, the porks that he was doing with David Blue. And at one point David Blue was like, No, at least my character's alive. And Rainbow <laughs> was like, Ah, I'm alive. Trust me. Ford's not dead. No, so that's one thing. Anybody you think would get off that hive ship, it'd be Ford. Oh yeah. I mean in a way I really hate David Blue. Because I was happy before Telford not watching Universe. <laughs> Those two on stage for two days, and it's like, I know I'm getting an incomplete story, but sod it, I am buying Universe when I get home. I watched Gauntlet for recording with Thomas. I'm there at the end going, oh, this is so sad. <laughs> it's so sad. I invested in it, just watching one episode of The 40. Again, straight away. It's one of those things you know, and be, what, I know I watched the opener when it, when it was shown on Sky, and I didn't get on with it. Don't know why but I didn't, so I never bothered with the rest of it. When I went back to it, knowing it was just going to be these two seasons, don't get attached, still got attached, to every <laughs> bloody one of them, even though I knew, don't know how do it, it's Rogue One, don't get attached to any of these characters because you know they're not mentioned, you know what that means. Damn me if I didn't feel it every time we lost one of them. Like, <laughs> Curse you Trixie bastards. Back to the original point, I think that helps that you've got the much, from day one, the much more interesting character of Ronan makes it that much easier to be the replacement character. Without any doubt. Just the whole concept that we're given in Runner, it's like, yeah, I'm already more invested in Ronan's character because already in 20 minutes of episode time, Ronan's got more characters than Ford got in 20 episodes. You've got to assume it's down to the writers not really knowing what they wanted to do with Ford. Because when you do have, ironically enough, interesting Ford stuff in season in the in his guest appearances in season two, Rainbow's knocking it out of the park. So it's like, okay, I had the actor, either didn't have the, the desire to do anything with him, or they didn't know what to do with him. Yeah, that's it. You've always got to be careful not to criticise the actor when it's simply the writers are not giving him anything to do and the directors are not mm. giving him enough. Well, directing. It's very easy to say, well, that was a terrible performance, but yeah. the lines you were given weren't written by him, and the director at the time wasn't saying, I need something more from you. The example I always use of this is George Clooney. Think back to a little movie that came out in 1997 called Batman and Robin. <laughs> okay. He's universally slated as being the worst Batman because of that film. It's like, hang on, have you actually seen George Clooney acting? The man can act. The problem was... He wasn't given a script for a 90s movie. He was given a script that looked like it was rejected from the 60s show. <laughs> I think that's the thing. SG-1 needed to stop where it stopped. Ten years for a sci-fi show is maybe pushing it. I think Atlantis had a couple more seasons in it. Yeah, probably did. And Universe definitely had at least one more. If for no other reason than you can't end shows on cliffhangers. I have no doubt if Universe was out now and sci-fi... Cancelled it after two seasons. It Like The Expanse, it would have been picked up by a streaming network for another couple of years. No question oh, definitely. whatsoever. And in fact, I think if Nielsen ratings had been thrown out the window back then, 
I think Universe would probably have been doing a lot better than it was given credit for. David Blue was sort of saying, you know, you get people saying, oh, you know, I've, you know, I've watched it, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. It's like, oh, well, brilliant. did you watch it when it aired? And they're like, well, no, we watched it through whatever less than legal means they were watching it streaming. It's like, and that's why you're not still watching it. Yeah, unfortunately. You know, if you'd, if you'd watched it the way you were supposed to watch it, well, hey, you might have got some closure. Yeah, unfortunately, those days have certainly gone. The one thing he was sort of talking about was the, the, the much-mooted idea of the big movie that was going to wrap up the Stargate franchise and finish off SG-1 and Atlantis and Universe. And it's like, that's a pipe dream because that's a lot of balls to keep in the air. Yeah. That was said a few years before big movies like Infinity War and Endgame. And you sit there and you think, okay, maybe it is doable. When you think about the people working on that movie are going to be the people that worked on the shows. They could have produced something incredible with a budget that was much lower than any other movie of comparable size was able to do. When you consider what those shows can do on their best episodes, story-wise, it can be better than some Hollywood films. Effects-wise, it can be. Acting-wise, definitely. One of the bits that always gets me, and I can never remember the name of the episode, season four finale for Atlantis. The Last Man, something like that? Shepard in the Future. Yeah. It's that bit where... You've got the sort of the hologram McKay filling Shepard in on what's happened to his friends. And just that little bit where he's covering what happened to Carter. And you see that bit where, you know, she basically, she gets her crew off her ship and then she kamikazes it to take out the Wraith. Yeah. Everything in that scene is gold. And you think, you know, you can produce that for a 40 minute episode of television. Yet you get some Hollywood movies that they're not packing half as much punch. And they're the things that really should be. It is really sometimes embarrassing to see what Hollywood studios come out with. Then you see the budget and you just think, why? Mm. And then you see 20 odd producers in the credits and you think, ah, there you go. Yeah, see, all of a sudden it makes sense. Right, shall we call it a night? Yes, because otherwise we are on the version of going for the, the three hour epic again. <laughs> okay, then, folks, that was Stargate Atlantis Condemned. Like, like I said, a very strong season two episode. Not the best of the season because, boy, there were some fantastic episodes in season two. But uh, a solid contender, nevertheless. Next episode, I'm not sure, I haven't decided yet. Might be an episode of Legend, I'm enjoying watching Richard Dean Anderson and John Delancey play Cowboys. It's quite fun. Tim, thank you very much for joining me tonight. Not a problem. You want to give a quick bit of information on your podcast? Yep, me and Stacey are still there with Uncharted Territories. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at UT underscore podcast. So we are there. I don't rush these days. Okay, folks, if you want to join me on the podcast, just like Tim has done and uh, Thomas did last week, well, last week, probably last month, depending upon when you go out, go out. just drop me a line. Uh, you can find us at stargatearchives.com, stargatearchives at gmail.com. We are on Tumblr and Facebook. You can find us on the feeds, on Stitcher, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. If you listen, subscribe, give us a review. Feel free to get in touch over anything, uh, leave feedback on various social media, Twitter feed at the Gatecast is going strong. Well over 4,000 followers now. I don't know really what we did to deserve that, but people keep following us. I don't know why. <laughs> Anyhow, folks, until next time, I've been Mike. Hi. <laughs> Cheers, Tim. Bye, everybody. Bye.